Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. I don't know how many of you were doing the math during the offertory, but if Hosni came here 30 years ago, clearly she was only about 5 or 10. Because she's hardly aged in the 13 years I've been here, and I don't have any hair anymore. So, you're the hatter. They have some great water down in Brazil. Well, we're going to start in First Peter tonight, but first I'm going to tell you something you've heard me say often, and that's that I have the coolest job ever. Part of it is because I get to do it here at Grace, uh, and it, it is often uh, something I'm reminded of that I am blessed to be one of the pastors here at Grace and that I get to work with youth at the same time. What you probably don't hear me say all too often is why I think I have the coolest job. Other, by the way, than Zookeeper is pretty amazing. But I'm going to argue youth pastor and zookeeper aren't all that different. Uh, and, and the other one is circus trainer, which again, there's some similarities between, between the three jobs. Um, I get to work with your students, your grandkids, your kids, um, some people you don't know, but you may have worked with them when they were little kids uh, in first and second grade, like the Joneses, uh, as an Awana listener, like some of you have done, uh, as deacons. Um, you've seen them baptized. I get to work with those students, and that's a blessing. Uh, they're weird. I love them for that, but I'm weird, and they tolerate me for that. But um, that's a neat thing. In a week, I get to go to Hume Lake, a place I grew up at being a youth pastor's kid. That's a neat place to go if you've never been. Try it in the summer, which right now you can go up there, and it feels like the summer. Apparently, there's no snow for our winter camp next week. They do open the pools up sometimes when that happens. Uh, so we might get to go swimming this winter camp, but I don't know about snow. I get to do that. I get to do the missions trips that we uh, report about from time to time. Uh, New Year's Eve, I did one of those, and I get to stay up all night and eat soda. Who my age gets an excuse to do that? The rest of us, we do that anyways, but, but I actually have a reason when I do it, and it's fun. Um, one of mine, and I don't mean to be offensive, you may have heard me say this before, uh, I, I'm, I have a, a strong belief, and I get, get this confirmed from time to time, that, that adults often act like junior high students with power or authority and money. Uh, if you look at us, sometimes we don't always act that mature. I get to work with junior high students, though, that when they act like junior high kids, that's what they're supposed to be doing. So they at least have an excuse. Um, you can be offended by that. Talk to me later. I can defend that statement a little bit. Now, of course not you all. I do this with the students. You all are the height of maturity. It's those other people outside this room right now. But it's, it's fun. One of my favorite reasons, though, is, is I get to take Scripture to, the, to students. I get to connect them, be part of how God connects with them. I mean, obviously, I don't do the connecting, but I get to connect them to God's word. I get to try to convince them that the Bible's not boring and they get sick of hearing me say that. Uh, but that's a good thing. I want that in their mind. Uh, I get to do that with adults too, but I get to work with students, that generation that everybody's always despairing from the beginning of time that they don't get it. That's my job. Part of that too means I get to tackle tough questions with them. 
And I, I bumped into one of our students recently, and I'll try not to give too many details in case you know this person, but uh, they were struggling with some tough questions, and they had bumped into some Christians that had told them they can't answer those. Ask those. Sorry, not that they couldn't answer them, but that, that you're not allowed to ask those questions. Well, as a youth pastor, one of my jobs is to always tell them they can. You can ask any question you need to ask. Now, I also tell them there are dumb questions. I mean, if, if as a junior high kid, somebody asks a question, you're not paying attention, and then you ask the question that they just asked and got answered right after them, that's a dumb question. There are dumb questions. We ask them all the time. But there are no bad questions. There's no question that if you don't know the answer to, you shouldn't pursue the right answer for, and that's the key. There are bad answers that we lock on to all the time. But there are no bad questions. I'd encourage you for you, no matter how old you are, there is no question that you can't come ask one of us pastors, that you can't ask your Sunday school teacher. There may be a bad time. Uh, I was joking about this with my students when I, I tossed this question out to them this last week. Uh, if you raise your hand in the middle of the youth group, Time and you ask me why I don't make any sense. That's a bad timing question. It's not a bad question. You can ask that of me. Um, if you want to know why I'm not that cool, you can ask that of me. Um, but, but don't ask during the sermon. That'd be bad timing. But there are lots of tough questions as Christians that we have, and we come into church and we're afraid to ask them, maybe because we're convinced nobody will treat us right, or worse, maybe because when we, we've asked them before, we haven't been treated right. Questions like, why do you believe in God? Well, I hope you can a- a- answer that. If you can't, please go ask that question of somebody. Why do you believe in God? I've sat in church for 80 years, 50 years, one year, about two minutes. Why are you here? Another one, why do we meet on Sunday mornings? That's prime football time until you know the other half of the, uh, half of the year. Why would we do that? That's a good question to ask. And pursue the right question to. The one tonight, this is, this is one we tossed out to our youth group this last week. It's actually an, an easier of the tough questions, but it might be a most, the most important one. And that's, who is God? You realize you could go to church and, and even go to a, a good Bible teaching church. And if you weren't paying attention because you were distracted by your kids or your grandkids or that other person's kid couple rows up, and never have a great answer to who is God. You could read your Bible and you picked the wrong time of the day, pre-coffee instead of post-coffee, <laughs> and you got to check off the box that you read it, but your brain wasn't connected yet. And so you missed what Scripture had in there. I think, to be honest, God would probably use that, because if you're still reading the words, your brain's catching something. But you could conceivably go through your whole life in church and still, because you never asked that question, fail to get the right answer to it. I want to encourage you, even before we start tonight, if you have any question, just ask it. Don't be embarrassed by whether or not you should know it. Don't be embarrassed by what you think their response is. If they chase you out of the church, shame on them. Look in the Gospels. Jesus constantly was welcoming questions from people. And if it was a sincere question, I honestly don't know, and I honestly think this is important, then he took the time to answer the question. Or at least give them a better answer for the question they should have asked. 
but he always had time for them if they were sincere in their pursuit. It was the hypocrites that he chased away. It was the people who had the answers that he had no time for. In fact, it sometimes involved a whip and throwing things because he was angry at them, rightfully so, righteously so. But who is God? That was the question for the youth group this week. And I just want to throw it out to you. This is, otherwise we'd be here all night. I'm not going to give you every answer the Bible has. We may still be here all night anyways because I tend to go long, but here are just a few answers that you'll find in Scripture. And hopefully I'll remember to remind you at the end, but as you take up Pastor Benji's challenge to read through Scripture this year, look for who God is in it. Look for who he says he is. Look for how he acts and treats people and interacts with them. The first one comes from 1 Peter. These are all basically some of my favorites, not all. Not all my favorites, but all of them are some of my favorites. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 20. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Quick pause. Did you catch the empty way of life part? Be easy to miss. I tell my students this. Sometimes the Bible's boring because we're not paying attention or we're reading it wrong. Well, that's one of those things that should catch your attention. What What do you mean I have an empty way of life? Well, listen to the Bible's answer on that. That's a good, tough question. I'm chasing after everything I want. Yes, but is it getting you anything that you need? Is that really what you ought to want? That's the Bible's challenge. Its answer is very different than what most of our world says. But, but it starts with, hey, for you know you were bought not with perishable things, silver or gold, those things we chase after, but you were taken away from that empty way of life, pursuing gold and silver and football championships and the best family on the planet, although that one comes with following God too quite often, not always, sadly. 19. You were bought with but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's possibly the most important thing in this section, but we're not talking about that tonight. We did talk about it this morning with communion. We were bought with the blood of Christ. That's amazing. This is, I think, my favorite verse out of those three. He, Christ, the lamb, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was, was revealed in these last times for your sake. Now, who is God? Well, one, he's eternal there. He was around before the world was made, and the Bible makes it clear all over the place that God has existed forever. In fact, if you're going to define God with a big G and no S at the end, that's part of that definition. It's inherent to it. That's partly why your neighbor, who believes in little g, S's, God's, and there are many of these, struggles when you talk to them about God and they they get that glossy-eyed look, it's because they're thinking through the definition of a little God that's just like you and me and maybe has a little more power, kind of like the Greek demigods. They're not thinking about the Bibles, big G, no S, he's the only one, he's eternal and powerful and everything else that goes into this answer. And so you're talking about one thing, they're hearing a different thing, and you don't realize, wait, maybe I should stop and explain who is God? It's a good, good question to ask all the time. Who is God? Because don't think for a minute that your non-Christian friend automatically understands who God is no matter how long they li- they've lived in the United States or Brazil. They don't know who God is if they don't know God. 
That should seem obvious, but we forget that. So we go to Thanksgiving with our non-Christian family member, and we're talking about God, and they're smiling and nodding their head, and they don't have a clue what we mean. Because we haven't explained who God is sometimes. Other times we have, and they still don't get it. But here, one, he's eternal, and that's all over Scripture. And he's Savior. Before we were made, this is what I like about verse 20, before we were made, the plan of salvation was already God's plan. It was never a reaction. It was the plan from the beginning. He hadn't made anything yet, and he knew what he was going to do. He's eternal. Who is God? He's eternal. No start date. No born on date. In terms of, he wasn't made. And he's our savior. Both are very fundamental aspects of who God is. Then he goes to what we typically think of first, that he's creator. And that's a good one. But don't lose that the eternal side is before creation and the Savior side is before creation. That is who God is before we even were made. Before the world we live in was made. He was eternal and he was Savior. And then John 1, 3, he's creator. You can go to Genesis 2, we'll get there eventually. But John 1, 3, that whole chapter actually is great on this, especially the beginning, but just this verse. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Since creation, everything else is just manipulating what already is made. The farmer doesn't actually make fruit. He just takes seeds that come from the fruit before, that came from the seeds, and you can go back all the way to the start. And who made the, the original seed? God did. When we make these amazing cities and buildings... We're using things that God put into existence. Everything was made through him. Even the things our telescopes can't reach yet. They'll get there. And God's already been there. He put it into existence. So who is God? He's eternal. He's savior. He's creator. And he's good at it. We forget that side of creation sometimes. Because we live in a fallen, sinful world. It's not so good anymore. But don't forget the good part. That's where we're going to Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 31. I don't know how I went past chapter 1, the first one of the Bible, but I managed to just then. Genesis 1, 31. Everybody there? This is an amazing verse. We miss it because of everything else going on in, in chapter 1. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Who had been made already? People. It's the sixth day. Adam's already around. It is easy to look at our neighbors. We have an empty house near us, and we panicked the other night because we think they were cleaners, but about 30 people piled out, hopped in their car. We're like, wait, did 30 people just move in next door? I don't care who they are, 30 people on an everyday night, that's a little too much. You bump into people enough because of sin, and all of a sudden creation doesn't always look so good. If you doubt that, go work with 100 junior hires that don't know Christ. 
I would love that, by the way, but I'm kind of crazy. People often rub us the wrong way, and we get this picture sometimes that creation maybe isn't all that good. We see earthquakes and tornadoes and disasters galore. And it's easy to get this picture that, yes, God made everything, but because we're tainted with sin, we forget the good part. And it says that God not only made it, but he was really good at creation. He's the master artist, and Scripture makes that clear too. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's good until we mess it up. And that includes people. That person who cut you off getting to church is a good creation. Fallen creation. But don't mix up sin, bad, which we brought into the world, with God being or having created something that's a little flawed. He's the master artisan, a wonderful, good creator. And he stopped and he looked at everything before we had introduced into the world. And he said, this is a good thing. We live in an amazing world. If you're into science, go study how amazing it is. If you're not into science, go study how amazing it is. Go look at National Geographic. Ignore some of their, you know, coming into existence parts, but... Look at the world we live in, and it's beautiful and wonderful. And yes, it's fallen, and imagine how much better it would have been and better it will be. But if it's this good and sin is as bad as it is, and so it's messed up, how amazing was it to begin with? And where are we going to get to live for eternity? In a good creation, because God is a master creator, not just a creator. He could have been bad at it. He still would have been God, but he could have been bad at it. It could have been a really flawed world. Not the God we know, but a God could be that way. We forget that. That's who God is. In fact, by the way, that is one of the arguments for God's existence without using Scripture. And it often impresses really, really smart people is to stop and to say, wait a minute, let's talk about beauty. Let's talk about how wonderful the world is because you can't explain it. The best you can come up with is, well, we just call it wonderful because it is. I'm sorry, I don't like that answer. I think if it's wonderful, there's a reason for it. And often that brilliant person that is caught up in whatever issues they have with coming to Christ, I don't know how often, but I know it happens, the turning point is when we stop and we say, there's a master creator, it wouldn't be this wonderful. Even in a fallen state, it wouldn't be this wonderful if God hadn't been there to make it so. To make words like beauty and creation and love and taste. It's one of my favorite new ones right now. Santa Maria style barbecue. You want to know why it tastes good? Because God made it. He could have made us live off of bland stuff. And he said, you know what? Daily, three or sometimes more times a day, I want them to enjoy life and what I made. And some of you are getting a little older. Sometimes taste is going away. You maybe should start being thankful for that, even if you don't get to enjoy it as much anymore. Also could have been all that hot sauce that you put on as a kid. You killed your taste buds. But there's a reason that exists, to go enjoy a meal. Are there better things in life 
than going and enjoying pie after church and talking about God with your friends. Only if it's bad pie. (laughs) And then the next week, you're not going to that restaurant. You're going to go to another one, and you're going to get good pie. And to be honest, no, there aren't really. There are a lot of things that tie it. God is a master creator. He's also a giver, the giver and sustainer, and the real answer is of everything. He gives us oxygen and sustains it, and some of you have struggled to breathe at different moments in your life. Maybe it's getting harder as you get older, and you know how precious that is. But if God were cruel, I say this with our students all the time, people accuse God of being mean. If God was mean, he'd be much better at being mean. He could mess with us. With Think about it. Take away my oxygen. I get scared really quick. Nurses. Is that, yeah? That, it happens often in a hospital. And nothing matters other than breathing at that point. You can put my kid in front of me, and if I can't breathe, I'm, I'm going to be struggling. God could take that away on a, on a, just back and forth and back and forth and play with us like we played with toys when we were little kids, mean and cruel. And he doesn't. If God really, like your neighbor maybe thinks, wanted to be mean, he'd be so, an omnipotent God would be so much creative too. An omnipotent creative God would be so much better at making us miserable. Because we're pretty good at it. We aren't, we're neither omnipotent nor all that creative when you think about it sometimes. He's a giver and sustainer of everything, but for this, I want to look at a couple verses that talk about the giver and the sustainer of joy and laughter. Sometimes Christians are guilty of not being joyful. I know that they'll know us by our love. They should also know us by our joy. And I don't just mean, you know, that serious joy that happens in hard times. That should be there. I mean that fun joy that happens in, you know, fun times. That should be true of us. Jeremiah thirty-one thirteen. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I, and it's God speaking, I will turn their mourning, not daytime, but sadness, their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. God says, I'm the one who gifts you with joy instead of mourning. I'm the one who makes life worth waking up in the morning. No you on that one. I'm the one who makes the day tolerable in a fallen and sinful world. In fact, enjoyable. I turn your mourning into gladness. Another one steps it up a little more. This is Psalm 30. 11. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. That's not a very good Baptist verse, by the way. So before you get mad and fire me, just pretend, if, if that's how you feel about dancing, pretend I didn't say it. But it's in Scripture, Psalm thirty eleven. You turned my mourning not just into joy, but I actually started dancing a jig. Also, before you get mad at me, it was teenagers this last Thursday that asked what, what your favorite kind of dancing is, and somebody actually said salsa. Um, it's good times. God gives us a reason to dance. 
even over something like a football game and a guy some of you like or don't like. Most of you probably like him. Over our kid graduating. Do you remember that moment? Hopefully your kid graduated. If not, I just brought up a painful moment. But if you had a kid and they graduated, wasn't that a moment worth dancing over? 13 hard years of homework every night. I'm in the middle of that with junior high. And my goodness, I'm like, I don't want to do math. I already did math. Why am I doing math again? You'll never use this. Sorry if you're a math teacher. You will. You will. The process is worth learning too. This report, you don't have to do it again. We all have typos. It's okay. It's we're human. But because the teacher needs it perfect and they need to learn to have it perfect. You did 13 years of that, kindergarten to 12th grade. Some of you signed up to, and paid for more at college so that your kid could go to school. Some of you had kids that were crazy enough to get a master's or a doctorate. And that affected your life too. And every graduation, including now, we have kindergarten graduation, we have sixth grade graduation, eighth grade, 12th grade, graduate school, doctorate, and every once in a while they're like, hey, second and a half grade, we made it to Christmas. Let's have a graduation ceremony. (laughs) And as parents, we're right there taking pictures. Yeah, we're going out to dinner again. You passed (laughs) PE. By the way, most of my kids don't like pee. I don't know what's wrong with them. They're like, no test. Well, part of it is they start taking tests in PE now, book work tests. You're like, really? We're overweight as a nation. Just make them go run. Give them a Frisbee. Go play. But morning wailing into dancing. I hate to break it to you. If you grew up Baptist like me, actually, I like dancing, but there will be dancing in heaven. If you're not happy about that, you can argue it out with God when we get there. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I think you're going to be the first on the dance floor up there. All those weddings you go to and you won't dance at, God's going to make us Baptists go through when we get to heaven. Psalm 126.2. You don't have to dance until you get there. That's okay. Psalm 126.2. There's a reason I'm focusing on the, on the joy and the laughter. And the, well, I forgot. I haven't gotten a laughter yet. 126.2. This is the laughter one. Our mouths were filled. Look at one, by the way. It's when the Lord brought. So when God did something, our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with joy, songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Because God worked, we started cracking up. We uncontrollably couldn't stop laughing at the most inappropriate time. Because God did something and we didn't care who was paying attention anymore. God is the giver and sustainer of joy and dancing and laughing. Did you catch that part in there too? What the impact of it was? The Lord, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Who among your neighbors, no matter how much they don't want your God in their life, If you had the best party on the block, wouldn't want to be there. We as Christians should be known for that, not just for calling the cops on our neighbors because it's 12 and we have to go to work the next day. That's okay too. It is, it's 12 and you have to go to work the next day. There are reasons they need to you know, turn it down a little bit. 
but we should be known for having the craziest parties right up until 10 o'clock. And we turn it off because of the sound curfew, and we let everybody go to sleep, and we invite them over. And I don't mean crazy parties the way the world means it, but I mean they should look at us and be like, you guys are weird. I don't really like hanging out with you, but I don't want to miss another party that you have. Whether it's just dinner or graduation ceremony or whatever it is, Christmas. Christmas should be the, Christians should be the envy of everybody at Christmas. Just think about that for a minute. We should have the best party. I know Michelle Winger gets that because she throws one every year at Christmas. Jesus' birthday party. We should be known for that. And when it happens, Psalm 126.2, Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. They'll finally stop paying attention to their football game that they got painted all up for and they have their jersey that they spent like $3 billion on. They'll stop paying attention to that and say, wait a minute, something exciting is happening there. And they'll run over and say, what game did I miss? And you say, no game, we went to church. <laughs> Think how much that would surprise your neighbors if, if they got drawn into church through that because they thought a football game was happening because we were celebrating so much. Joy and dancing and laughter because God moves. Because God's amazing. Isaiah 30, 18. We'll walk away from that for a little bit. He also is the defender and the arbiter. I know that's a big word. I had to look it up. I didn't actually. But defender and arbiter of justice. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And the reason I picked this verse out of all the ones that talks about God being the defender of the weak, the orphan, the widow. Usually it's orphan, widow, and I think slave. It's almost always those three. It's at least the first two and then a third one thrown in. God says, I defend the weak because nobody else will. Actually, you should. God says that too. You should defend because I do. But did you see the weird words that it paired it with? When I think of justice, I don't think of grace and compassion. God does. This is who he is again. God is the one who makes sure that when nobody else is defending justice... He does. But he does it with grace and compassion, too. At least to us. He's talking to his people, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. We do live in a fallen world, and when you see nobody paying attention to truth or justice or everything else the comic books talk about, God does. He makes sure that when there's a wrong that goes unpunished here, it is still dealt with. We can be encouraged because of that. Knowing that when we're wronged, God is still out there defending justice. We also should be just a touch scared about that because who else does wrong before the, besides the person that hurts us? We do. That means sometimes we might end up in a moment, at least, on the wrong side of God's justice. justice That should make us sober in any given moment. About when I'm angry, am I, am I really right in this? Am I responding correctly? 
Or am I just going to go do something that at some point God's going to have to come in and say, wait, I stand for truth and justice and you've run away from it just now. Come back on my side before I have to discipline you in a way that hurts. He says, I want to be gracious and compassionate to you and I will show you justice. Most of the time, that's a very encouraging thing. Those are all true. God is eternal. He is Savior. He's creator, the master creator, in fact, the giver and sustainer of joy and laughter, the defender and arbiter of truth and justice, and so much more. But here's the last one for the night. And this one is perhaps the most beautiful. It comes from Luke 15. It's the story of the prodigal. I think it's Pastor Benji in a sermon you can find online. It's a great sermon on this, but I think he, he used the phrase prodigal father. It's the story of the prodigal father, not the prodigal son. The point in there is it's, the story is about the father. The son tells the truth about the father. We all know the son. We all are the son. Unless we want to be the other son, but that's a bad plan. <laughs> The other son has a bad response. But Luke 15, we're not going to look at the whole thing. You know it. I could do a whole sermon on it, but I'm not going to. I just want you to focus on this part, which is the, the key point. 1520, when, the, when the, the son finally stops destroying his life. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. He got the joy part, by the way. He's having a big party right now. And kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's the God of joy and laughter and dancing. He's showing that there, but he's the father of the prodigal because the whole point is about him. And the picture that we see there is beautiful. Mention Benji's sermon. Go chase that down. There's a great, amazing, cheesy youth ministry video from back when I was a kid, which is like a long time ago, um, back in the 80s by a guy named Kurt Cloninger. You can find not that one. I have it, and I was trying to convert it for this, and it didn't work because it's on, you know, like beta. Um, but you can find it on YouTube, a live version where he's talking about this. It's a very long story. But if you want to hunt it down, you can. But he goes through this and talks about the story. And the, and the neatest part is when the guy comes back, it's, it's modernized a little bit. When he comes back and he goes to his mailbox and he thinks his parents aren't home, he opens it and there's a note. And it says... There are clean sheets on your bed. There's food in the fridge. The key's still where it was when you left. And he knows they've been waiting for him every day. His parents. They taped it there and they haven't let anybody remove it because they're looking for the day he'd come back. And and in the video, he goes into great detail about it. It's a long story again, but... He takes the note, and when his parents see it, they know, wait a minute, the note's gone, my kid's back, and they go nuts. That's the picture of God. The kids run away, and he's pursuing them in, in the verse. Kid's coming back, 
He's shy. His head's down because he's a man and he knows that he doesn't deserve to come back. And the father's looking for him every day. And every day it was a bad day because he didn't come back. And then one day he saw him and he takes off running because he's a pursuing father. That's cool. Amazing story. I was going to tell you a moment from Nathan and I a couple years ago, but I'm going to cry if I tell it. So if you want to hear it, come see me afterwards. Um, Nate, well, I'll, I'll give you the short version. If I stop crying, I'll just pray and we'll be done. But um, about two years ago, we moved into a house and Nathan ran away. Uh, it turns out he just left because he was angry, but we didn't know that at the time. Uh, and I found him right up before you badmouth the skaters that I get to work with, by the way. The skaters are the only people that have been paying attention and can point the cops in the right direction. That's how bad it was. I was actually doing announcements up here at a 6 p.m. service when my phone went off and it was Tiff crying because he'd been gone. Uh, and we, I'm going to cry. Sorry. <laughs> and I found him at GameStop and we both ran to each other and it's this story. Because that's who God is. And I'm crying because two years ago, my biggest fear happened for 35 minutes. And it felt like years. And that's who God is. He pursues us when we bailed on him. We ran away and took all his money and, and called him mean things. And he hunted us down. And he's crying because he found us. That's who God is. Eternal Savior, the one who gives us joy, and the God who pursues us when we ran away and made ourselves his enemy. That's who God is. That's why it's a tough question. It's actually not a tough question to answer. This one's a tough question to embrace the answer on. This is who God is. The Bible talks about him endlessly. Every page in the Bible is all about who God is. If we open our eyes to that, I've got to be honest, it's the hardest answer that's good to embrace because it's too incredible. You mean this is who God is? Not everything I've heard before? Or if you've grown up in the church and it's been presented right, you mean everything I heard before is right? This is who God is? It's a beautiful answer, and it makes all the difference in the world that you, no matter how old you are, when you continue answering it, by the way, no matter how old you are, it will change how you live until you go to see him and your eyes are opened even wider. Just some different ways. This one in particular, that, that fa prodigal father picture in particular, with one part of life, Pastor Benji's read through scripture thing. If you understand that God pursues you, it will transform how you read scripture. One, because of how you're looking, but two, because you're going to fail someday. You're going to sleep in, and you're going to have to go to work, and you're going to get home. You'll totally have forgotten that every morning you wake up to read Scripture, but today you didn't because you got up late, and you're angry, and you're being a horrible Christian and a horrible person. And you get, go to bed, and you finally realize, oh, I forgot to read the Bible. And i got to wake up tomorrow, and my wife's already asleep. 
Or the light bulb's out, and because the light bulb's out, I can't go get a new light bulb to fix the light bulb. I've got to wait for the sunlight, which God made. And instead of feeling condemned, you remember, you know what? God loves me. One missed day is not the end of the world. A thousand missed days, you've got some problems with your relationship. And I don't want to discourage you from reading or, make, or tell you to take it lightly. All the more, I want you to encourage you to. But our best friend, if you missed one day with him, if you're used to calling him every day and you missed one day, the only thing that would happen would be they'd be scared for you. They wouldn't be angry if they're a really good friend. They'd be, again, like those junior hires that I, wa- that I work with. The junior high girls, they're insane. Like, it's been 10 minutes since they saw each other, but somebody came out of the bathroom finally, and they didn't go as a herd for once. And, and they run in, and they're like, oh, I haven't seen you in 10 minutes. And they hug, and it's been like 10 decades for most normal people. That's their greeting. That's God with us. The next day when you get up and you read your Bible like you plan that goal, God does not come and say, wait a minute, first, like, a parent, like sometimes parents do when we're in a bad moment. He doesn't sit you down and say, first, we've got to talk about yesterday. You totally missed. We are not having a talk today until we cover yesterday's material. I'm angry at you, and I don't want to see you right now. Go to yesterday, then come back. That is not God, but that's how we think about him. We can't go to sleep that night, which is good that we take it seriously. And God said, why are you losing sleep about this? Pray yourself to sleep right now that's talking to me. Goals for scripture reading, goals for scripture memorization, here's one of the cool things about them. Failing at them is still a form of success. In this way, not completely. So don't like celebrate your success. Yeah, I'm dancing because I failed. Um, not that. But it means you tried. So say you take up Pastor Benji's fighter verses and you don't memorize a single one because God wired your brain not to work so well in memorizing. Works great in other ways, but memorizing you struggle with. But for seven days, you struggle to try. Do you think God really cares that you didn't memorize it by the next Sunday when you got a new one? Don't you think he's celebrating that every day you were thinking about the same verse, whether you can quote it word perfect or not and get a want of credit? Which is important. No, he says, you spent time with me. I realize it wasn't perfect, but I've been putting imperfect pictures of yours up on my fridge forever. You're never going to hit perfect. But it's the daily struggle to try that matters. So you have a lofty goal of memorizing all of Scripture, and you only memorize half, which I've got to be honest, I'd be really impressed by. And you get to heaven, do you think God's going to give you a Bible and be like, wait, at the outside, you've got to finish the other half first. And when we put it that way, we think, no, that's ridiculous. But isn't that how we live so many other times with that picture of who God is? We get these wrong pictures of who God is in our head and we think he's going to hold us off at the gates of heaven and say no. And we forget the part where he said, I already called you my kid. What do you mean? Of course you're hopping in the van to go to grandma's house. There's, okay, God doesn't have a grandma if you lost that picture. But I don't, when we went to grandma's house for Christmas, I didn't look at the kid that I liked the least and be like, you're walking. It's L.A. They wouldn't get there. I put them in the car and I took them with me and God says, hey, 
I'm your father. The one who pursues you when you run away from me. Yes, I take your sins seriously. Remember the Savior part. But don't hide from me. Don't fear in that sense of thinking you're going to get thrown out because you're not good enough. You weren't good enough. That was the point. I've already embraced you and given you my name and shown you grace and mercy and forgiveness and justice and reason to celebrate. And everything about our life, if we understand who God is, completely transforms. And it's never an answer that we're going to have 100% until we get to heaven. It's an answer that can grow in depth and richness every single day of our life. It's why when you're reading your Bible for the 50th time 50 years later, you're still reading parts that you didn't get before. That's absurd, only it's true. Because we understand better and better each day who God is. Never forget that picture. God is the pursuing father. Wrapping it up, kind of what we talked about. Number one, tough questions are okay. Just pursue the right answers. But ask the questions. Don't hide them. Often finding that answer will give you much greater joy because in all of those tough questions, you're going to find out who God is, who you are in light of him, and how he's made it okay how he's called you his child and taken care of our sin. But chase down those tough questions, whichever tough question it is. I don't have all the answers, by the way. You're going to stump me because you're going to think of a tough question I've never heard. Same with the other pastors. That's okay. But go, go chase down the answer. Make sure it's the right one. You get the wrong answer. That affects things too. Similarly, the right view of God matters. It affects how we worship. It affects how we live, how we think. Just think through joy, anticipation, looking forward to God, justice, actual dependable—excuse me, actual dependable security, not money and not governments. Those two don't really have a good track record right now, but God does, and always has. Fatherly affection and pursuit—that's what we see with God. And again, I mentioned this before, but as you read scripture this year, as you memorize the fighter verses, or you fail, but you're trying. As God's word gets into your brain and your heart and your life, look for who God is and how that makes a difference this year. Either a greater understanding of something you already know. I have heard the prodigal son story all my life and I'm going to hear it the rest of my life. And guess what? I know it much better now. Because I've lived it and then I see it in scripture and it's, oh my gosh. That's what it means. As a teen, I didn't get that part of it. I thought I did, but I have it in a very much more real way now. As you read it, who is God? And what difference does it make today and tomorrow and for eternity? Because he's great and wonderful and amazing. And that's only about six answers and he's got about a billion of them. Let's pray. Lord, you're so wonderful to us. Open our eyes to who you are, how great you are, how loving, how gracious, compassionate, just, majestic, 
creative and how much you love us that you'd pursue us to the cross. Lord, we praise your name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net. 